Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight, we're talking about the Forage First Diet for Horses, and our event is sponsored by Stanley Forage. Instinctively, we know our horses do best eating forage. They're built to graze, after all, and forage access provides nutrition and entertainment, and also helps prevent conditions that are common, such as gastric ulcers. But with so many forage options on the market, what are the best sources for your particular horses? To help guide us, we're joined tonight by Dr. Lori Lawrence, a nutrition researcher at University of Kentucky, and Dr. Stephen Duran of Performance Horse Nutrition. Welcome to both of you. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So let's go ahead and start with Dr. Lawrence. Can you tell us about your research interest in equine nutrition and what you work on there at the University of Kentucky? Sure. Right now we have two main research interests. One is in the microbial colonization of the foal's gastrointestinal tract. So we're really interested in understanding how the foal goes from being basically a milk eater to a forage digester. And then the other part of that is that we're really interested in forages. And we've done a lot of research looking at how there are seasonal changes in different pasture plants. And then we're also really interested in developing some kind of a simple index that horse owners can use to compare forages for their particular horses. And Dr. Duran, you're on the other side of the country in Idaho. Can you tell us a little bit about your interest in equine nutrition and your consulting work, uh, as well as your work with Stanley Forage? Uh, yes, uh, I'm a consulting equine nutritionist. So what that means is I take the, the things that Dr. Lawrence and colleagues generate in their labs and then get that into a bag of feed or into a bag of forage product for horses. So I consult with feed manufacturers. I consult with veterinarians, large farm owners in helping them design diets, design feeding programs to allow those horses to reach their, reach their genetic potential. So I want to give a quick note to our listeners. Both of our doctors tonight are PhD nutritionists, and they are not veterinarians, so we're going to be focusing on nutrition rather than medical questions. If you have a medical question related to a condition of your horse um, that you need some nutritional support, we recommend talking to your veterinarian and then also consulting with a nutritionist uh, for that. Uh, I also want to give us uh, everyone a quick review of our Ask the Horse Live format. Uh, we're going to be starting with the questions that everyone submitted during registration. If you have a question you'd like to ask live or you would like a clarification on one of the responses, you can enter it in the chat window in front of you if you're listening online rather than via your phone. We're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible. If you're listening to our archive or our podcast and are interested in joining us during our live event so you can get your questions answered live, you can register to receive our announcements at thehorse.com or visit thehorse.com slash askthehorselive. So with that, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, the first question is for Dr. Duran, and I, I'd like for you to clar clarify to everyone, what are we talking about when we're talking about forage in a horse's diet? Well, quite simplistically, what we're talking about is forage is plant material that's eaten by a horse. So that could include things like pasture plants. That could include pasture plants that are then cut and dried uh, for use later. Those would be things like hay, baled hay. And then also forage products include uh, pellets and cubes that are fed to horses or even chopped type forage. But basically forage is plant material that's eaten by horses. 
And Dr. Lawrence, our next question is from Jose in Mexico, and he wants to know what's the minimum amount of forage a high-performance racehorse would need? And I'm hoping you can also talk to us a little bit about the forage requirements of non-performance horses in comparison. Sure. Well, that's a, it's an excellent question. So um, there have actually been a number of studies that have looked at how much hay racehorses actually consume in kind of a real life situation. Um, and so generally we would think that probably 1% of body weight would be somewhere around the minimum amount that we would want to provide. So if we're talking about 1,100 pound horse, um, that's 11 pounds of hay per day. So that would be the, the bare minimum. In some cases, horses may be high performance horses might be eating up to 1.5% and then a fair amount of concentrate after that. When we talk about non-performance horses, well, if we're talking about the two pasture ornaments that are living in my backyard, um, they can be eating up to say two, even two and a half percent of body weight per day in forage um, pretty easily. So whatever the minimum is, I guess that sort of depends upon the situation that you're in and the forage that you're feeding. So when you're feeding the high performance horse and you're starting with forage, then why do you need to go ahead and add a concentrate maybe for that horse? Well, high performance horses generally have calorie requirements that are very high, just like any you know, high performance human athlete has a very high calorie requirement. And forage alone can't provide all, enough calories to meet those needs. So then you have to think about providing other calorie dense feeds like concentrates that contain either grains or fats or things like that so that you basically complement the forage with a higher energy feed and then go ahead and try to meet all the other requirements. Dr. Duran, we have a question from Susie in California and she wants to know what are your feelings regarding the use of oat haze, oat wheat and barley blends as a daily forage with either teff or alfalfa for a horse? Uh, yes, out in uh, the western United States, we do feed a fair amount of what we call grain-type haze. Uh, those would include things like oat hay, wheat hay, barley hay. The, the first consideration with those is to make sure the variety of, of wheat and barley especially is what we call a beardless variety. And the beardless means that it doesn't have the barbs in the seed head that actually will pierce the lips and, and get caught and cause horses to have sores. So those grain haze are widely used and can be widely used for horses, but make sure they're the beerless variety. Then as we, we have these forages, these, these grain forages, if you will, we need to remember the taller that plant gets, the lower the digestibility of that plant. So if we look at extremes, you can have very short grain type haze that are, that are highly digestible. And then at the other end of the extreme, we can have uh, haze that are basically straw and grain. So somewhere in between is where we want to cut those. Typically, if you look at them, we typically cut them in what's called the early dough stage. The other consideration, and I think what Susie's trying to get here is, a lot of these grain hays have a higher sugar and starch content than our regular hays such as alfalfa and cool season grasses. So they are fairly high in sugar. Thus the mixing with teff, a low sugar hay, and alfalfa, another low sugar hay, uh, is warranted in that particular situation. 
both the teff and the alfalfa will have a higher nutrient profile than the oat haze or the wheat haze or the barley haze. So we typically will utilize the teff or the alfalfa to boost the overall quality of the forage in the diet. So, Dr. Duran, I I have a follow-up question actually on the the oat hay. So, in my area, I'm in Central Oregon, and we'll feed large bales of oat hay um, just as entertainment for our horses. Um, so, if you have horses that are sugar sensitive, is it a concern to be giving them free access to uh, to oat grass straw? Uh, yes, because it, it depends, again, on, on the stage of maturity when that was, was cut. So if you're putting a large bale of, of oat hay out and the horses are just eating the heads of that, they're getting a high sugar content and not much fiber. So, yes, you could be overloading them or, or giving them more sugar than they need if the horse is diagnosed as being sugar sensitive. Now, on the other hand, if the grain has been harvested and it's truly a straw, not with the grain haze, but with like bluegrass straw, which is very common again in Oregon, uh, that's much more digestible than the, the oat straw or the wheat straw or the barley straw. Okay. So part of it is knowing what you're actually buying then and feeding. And testing what you have, absolutely. Um, since you mentioned testing, let's go ahead and touch on that. Can you explain how you can test hay for its nutrition uh, value and why that's important? Uh, yes, I, I absolutely can. Uh, if if you buy hay, yet you don't know what the nutrient content of that hay is, or you don't know the contribution that that hay is providing to the, the nutrient requirements of the horse, it's, it's hard to get the rest of the diet correct. So you cannot look at a hay visually and determine the nutrient content. Uh, so thus, you have to take a sample of the hay, a representative sample. You use a what they call a core sampler to do that, where you drill little holes into uh, a multitude of bales, combine the sample, and then uh, send a subsample of that to the laboratory. Uh, some great laboratories uh, in the United States for analyzing hay. A typical analysis is around the $30 mark that will tell you uh, the protein, the trace minerals, the macro minerals such as calcium and phosphorus uh, of the hay will give you a calorie content of the hay. And it's a, a very worthwhile process to get your hay analyzed. Dr. Lawrence, our next question is from Kathy in Texas, and she wants to know if alfalfa pellets can replace some of your horse's hay in its in its uh, forage ration. That's a really good question, and I think um, the answer to that is that from a nutritional standpoint, that's absolutely possible. Um, the alfalfa pellets would have a relatively similar nutrient composition to good quality alfalfa hay. Um, but from a sort of more physiological standpoint, one of the things that you would want to be aware of is that when the horses eat long stem hay, there's a lot of chewing that's involved in that. And as a result, there's a lot of salivation um, and they have relatively long particles. And so those longer particles and the saliva that is produced when they are chewing long stem hay goes down into the stomach and the saliva actually has a protective effect in the stomach and also that long stem hay tends to fo form a fiber mat in the stomach. When you have alfalfa pellets, not 
not not talking about cubes, but actual pellets that are small, the particle size is really small, and um, the horses don't have to use nearly as much chewing. So you don't get the same physiological benefits from the alfalfa pellets that you get from some hay. So while you can use the alfalfa pellets sort of as a hay stretcher, I would still recommend that you try to have at least 1% or perhaps, depending upon the type of horse, if it's a horse that's um, does not have high calorie requirements, you probably want to have 1.5% of the body weight as long stem hay, at least. And Dr. Lawrence, we have a question that's coming from our live audience. Um, we, Christine wants to know if there's a product that offers a variety of grasses with health benefits for horses that can't graze or don't have the opportunity to graze. I, I guess I'm not Sure, there. Are, so there are a number of um, forage products that are on the market. Um, there are some cubed products that could be used. There are also some chaff products that could be used. Um, there's also some hydroponic uh, forages that can be produced. Um, so there's a variety of other opportunities there if you have horses that can't graze. Uh, Dr. Duran, our next question is for you, and it's from Betty in Alabama, and she wants to know what is the best forage to free feed to a horse that has insulin resistance? Uh, a good question. Lots of uh, of our horses uh, are sensitive to sugar or have insulin resistant issues. So the, the short answer to that is a hay that is low in sugar and starch content, a hay with a low NSC, ESC, and WSC value; those are acronyms for different uh, sugar components in the in the hay. So, what types of hay are those? Those are typically the warm season grasses. Uh, things like teff and Bermuda fall into that, and also alfalfa is low in sugar content compared to some of our cool season grasses, such as Timothy, orchard grass, ryegrass, some of those grasses. Um, we have another question from our live audience. Uh, Dr. Lawrence, I'm going to give this one over to you. It's from Amber, and she wants to know, what's the maximum amount of forage a horse with poor dentition can consume in one meal? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> I don't know that I know the answer to that. Um, there's another. There was another question in our list about what, what we should be feeding horses maybe that have poor dentition. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I guess one of the things that I think about when I have older horses that have difficulty chewing or have poor dentition is using something like um, an alfalfa cube that you could soften. Um, and then I think you would also want to perhaps feed it in a way that would slow consumption because sometimes um, horses that don't chew very well are inclined to swallow a big old gob all at once, and that can lead to um, them to sort of gag on it. So um, my thought there would be partly to think about dividing your hay up into perhaps four or five meals a day, um, and then if you have poor dentition, maybe using something that's already partially processed like alfalfa cubes or chaff. Dr. Lawrence, we have a question from Jerry in Oregon. And Jerry wants to know if it is possible for sugars to increase in stored orchard grass hay um, cut from the previous season. So are those, is that sugar going to increase once that hay has been harvested? Well, actually, um, 
when the hay is harvested, so the day that it's cut, that's probably the highest that the sugars will be. Um, as the plant lays in the field and it starts to wilt and there's still respiration going on, a lot of the um, sugars will actually be used up. Um, so theoretically, once the hay goes in the barn um, and if it is not um, heating and respiring anymore, it should be relatively stable. But I would, I would think it would be highly unlikely for the sugars to actually increase um, during storage. Instead, um, you might actually see a small decrease. And Dr. Lawrence, we have a follow-up question from Kay in our live audience uh, who wants to know what long stem hays are available in the southern states? Well, as far as what you're going to be able to get locally, um, depending upon where you are in the southern states, certainly Bermuda grass is pretty popular if you are in, for instance, Texas and Florida and places like that. Um, if you are in sort of the the middle southern states, um, you might have access to um, tall fescue. Um, and then of course alfalfa is grown in pretty much every state in the United States and so um, that would be another hay source for you. But as far as the grasses would go, um, in the southern states you're talking about the warm season grasses um, and then as you move up into say uh, Georgia and a little bit further north than that, then you're going to be looking at uh, some of the cool season grasses, including tall fescue. And Dr. Lawrence, we have uh, a, our next question is that question about uh, senior horses and what the best forage option is for them. It's from Molly in Idaho. Do you have any recommendations beyond the wetting of, of alfalfa or hay cubes? Are there other options that horse owners can consider? Well, there's certainly a large number of commercially manufactured uh, senior feeds that are on the market and many of those actually have forage products incorporated into them and so whether those are um, they've incorporated some chaff or they've incorporated some pulps or some hulls or some things like that that provide the fiber component um, those can also be utilized very effectively. Uh, Dr. Duran we have a question from our live audience. Therese says that her vet thinks that Tef Hay's nutritional content is basically like feeding cardboard. In other words, it has no nutritional value. Is that true? Uh, again, the short answer is no, but the nutrition value of any hay is not as dependent on the type of hay, but uh, the maturity of the hay when it was harvested. Now, that's a bit simplistic. We certainly know that there are nutrition differences between like alfalfa haze and grass haze. But when we're, when we're in all the grass haze, the difference in the nutrient content between a, a, a tep hay, a fescue hay, a orchard grass hay, or a timothy hay has to do with the height of the plant when it was cut. So the taller a plant gets, the more of its structure is as fiber and specifically as non-digestible fiber. So the taller a plant gets, it becomes more like a tree and less digestible. And we have another question from our live audience. Dr. Lawrence, I'll give this one to you. It's from Philip. And Philip wants to know about feeding free choice grass hay from round bales. Are there any issues or concern with free choice feeding like this? Um, of course, it always depends upon what kind of horses you're feeding. So if you have, like I have, two pasture ornaments who 
you know, could get fat on air um, and you are feeding a very high quality grass hay. So just like Dr. Duren said, if you if you harvest grass hay at an early stage of maturity, it can be highly nutritious. And so uh, providing that ad libitum to horses that are uh, prone to become overweight could be an issue. On the other hand, um, if you are feeding hay that is later in maturity, so it has more fiber and it's less digestible, then your concerns would certainly be much less. I would say that um, in any case where you're going to be feeding round bales uh, to horses, it would be a great idea to use hay that's been stored inside and baled properly. So in addition to nutrition quality, we should always think about whether or not the hay is clean and free from mold. And then you would also want to think about whether or not the amount of horses that are eating on the round bale are sufficient to um, use up that hay in a reasonably short period of time so it doesn't become weather damaged. If you're going to use a round bale and you can put it under cover, then that's really ideal. But um, if it's going to be outside and exposed to the elements, then you'd like for them to eat it up pretty rapidly. Okay. And this is crossing over into the medical side, um, but what concerns are there related to uh, the potential of the horse being exposed to botulism and should horse owners be talking to their vets about getting their horses vaccinated against botulism if they're feeding off round bales? Uh, Dr. Lawrence? Um, at least in, in my experience and my understanding, um, when I think of a round bale, I think of uh, hay that has been baled at a low moisture content and has been cured just like hay that you would buy in a small square bale. Um, botulism is can occur in, in large bales, but usually those are bales that have been uh, produced at a higher level of moisture. And so um, wrapped bales more likely than bales that are actually kept in the, that are baled at a low moisture content and then kept in the hay shed. Um, Dr. Duran, our next question is for you. It's from Kim in Florida, and she wants to know about feeding alfalfa hay. Does it make horses hot, or is it good to give? Is there a good standard for the amount of alfalfa the horse should get as part of their forage ration? Uh, great question. Uh, the first part of that, can it make horses hot? Uh, I think we need to all understand that from a calorie standpoint, a pound of alfalfa will always contain more calories again per pound than a given grass hay. And when we feed horses, what we typically feed horses is by the universal measurement of a flake. Again, a flake of alfalfa will typically be more dense or heavier than a flake of grass hay. So when the barn help feeds a flake of alfalfa versus a flake of grass hay, they're feeding more weight and that more weight has a higher calorie content per pound. So I think that's a lot of what causes uh, the misconception, if you will, that, that horses will become hot or aggressive when they eat alfalfa. The, the second part of that, is there a good standard of, of how much to give? Again, it depends a bit on the nutrient requirement of, of the horse. If we have a horse that is a, a pregnant mare or a lactating mare, they would get a higher percentage of alfalfa because they would require the higher calories and higher protein that an alfalfa would bring to the, to the dinner table. 
with performance horses, I typically do like to use some alfalfa in the diet. I like to use for that 1,100 pound performance horse, somewhere in the neighborhood of three to five pounds of alfalfa per day. I like to time the feeding and feed that prior to exercise so I get some uh, buffering from the calcium, some acid buffering. Uh, may help prevent some some ulceration but the other reason to add the alfalfa is because the additional protein and additional calories help the horse meet its energy requirements and help the horse meet his protein requirements so i do feed alfalfa hay to performance horses not a problem and i do feed it to pregnant and lactating mares without issue as well so dr duran i heard you say you know, three to five pounds of alfalfa. So do you expect that horse owners should be weighing their hay every time they feed? Um, because I always feel like I should, but I don't always. And then if you had any tips for making it easier, I think that our audience would probably appreciate that as well. Yeah, ideally, um, both Dr. Lawrence and I would like to think that you weigh everything you feed your horse every time, but we're also realistic and we understand that doesn't happen. <laughs> it's very optimistic um, of you, yeah. <laughs> so so what I would do as, as a um, fallback measure, especially with the hay, is if you simply weigh what your bale of hay weighs, okay, let's say it's a uh, a bale of hay in the eastern United States that may weigh 45 to 50 pounds, or it's a uh, three-string bale of, of alfalfa in Bend, Oregon that weighs 110 pounds. If we just kind of know what our hay bales weigh, and then by the number of flakes, okay, the, the bale has 14 flakes, it weighs 100 pounds, and you can do the math and determine what the flake would weigh. So I think that's a good fallback measure to, to do. The other thing that you can do is you can actually say, all right, I feed my horse three flakes of hay and weigh it once and see what it weighs. And then you have a pretty good idea of what's going on. And then do you, do you have some tips on actually physically weighing the hay? Like how, how do you recommend someone actually does that? Um, couple different ways if there if you have a a platform scale or a scale that, that that has a flat surface on top you can actually just put the the flakes of of hay on that uh, and you can weigh those if you don't if you have more of the the hanging type scale what i typically will do is i'll put the hay in a feed bag an, an empty grain bag with a piece of twine string on it and weigh the hay in the bag hung on the scale and that gives you a, an easy way to determine, at least ballpark, how much hay you're feeding those horses. Yeah. I so Michelle, if I can, oh, yes. can I, Dr. Lawrence? Keep in there? Yeah. So you can actually um, get a luggage scale, and that works pretty well for um, weighing your hay. Um, and you can even use it if you're feeding with a hay net or if you have a hay net that you use in your trailer, you can also do it that way. And the yeah. luggage scales are pretty inexpensive. Yeah, that's I use a luggage scale and uh, and hay bags uh, or nets uh, that I weighed in, and um, it's uh, I'm sure my house sitter uh, who feeds horses for me when I'm not in town thinks I'm crazy, but um, but it is really interesting. I I once I started weighing, I realized every time I feed, it's eight pounds, and that's just and I'm pretty consistent when I. Um, and I had no idea. I always thought I was feeding, I don't know, 10 pounds. Like I wasn't accurate. I w wasn't accurate, but I was consistent. So uh, it's an interesting exercise uh, for sure as a horse owner to start weighing that hay. Um, 
Dr. Lawrence, we have a follow-up on alfalfa. Uh, Sue in South Carolina wants to know if one pound of alfalfa pellets equals nutritionally uh, one pound of alfalfa hay. It would depend upon the alfalfa hay. So usually the alfalfa pellets are made from um, pretty good quality uh, alfalfa, and so their nutrient profile would be probably closer to a, a mid-bloom um, alfalfa hay. So when we when we look at the alfalfa, um, it will first have buds, and then it starts to bloom, and it have purple flowers, and then eventually it will go to seed. And as Dr. Dern said before, as it gets taller, and as the plants form those seeds, then their nutritional value goes down. So the alfalfa pellets would be similar to something that's in the um, middle of the bloom stage or early bloom stage, whereas the um, if you waited until a late maturity alfalfa, it would actually have fewer nutrients in that type of hay than if you were feeding the alfalfa pellets. Dr. Duren, we have a question from our live audience. Uh, Margo wants to know how steaming hay affects its nutritional value. Uh, steaming hay uh, is is becoming more common. It, it started in Europe, and it started not only with steaming hay, but also soaking hay as well, uh, largely due to the poor climactic conditions they have there for growing hay that they were getting a lot of dust and, and mold on hay. So the effect that, that steamers have is they, they certainly can help remove some of the, the dust or, or dirt associated with that. Uh, they also tend to hydrate some of the stems back so they soften hay, uh, improves palatability. And then, depending on the length of time they're steamed, they can uh, have slight uh, modifications to the sugar level, not as much as you would get if you soaked hay, but steaming does uh, tend to, especially if it's, if it's uh, over a, a, a due course of time, will actually slightly lower the sugar content of the hay. And we do have a, a follow-up question from our live audience, Dr. Duran, asking specifically about soaking hay and how it can affect nutritional value. Do you want to touch on that? Uh, absolutely. So the the driving force behind soaking hay, again, started in Europe, and they were soaking hay again to clean the hay. Uh, a lot of their hay uh, may have been baled at a higher moisture than they wanted, so they were using that as a means of, of getting rid of dust and debris off of hay. Uh, in the United States, we soak hay more as a method to reduce the amount of sugar in the hay. What so the, the the question or the follow-up question, well, how much does it influence the sugar content of the hay? And that is all over the board. It depends on the type of the hay, the stem thickness, uh, the amount of time that the hay is soaked, the temperature of water in which the hay is soaked. But in general, soaking of, of hay for 30 minutes to an hour in in warm water will actually reduce the sugar content of the hay. Again, I don't want to give a specific number because it can be all over the board, but in 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 every case, or certainly most cases, you can say, all right, soaking the hay is going to reduce the sugar content of the hay. Okay. Uh, and Dr. Lawrence, are you still with us there? I think I you am. might be having Sorry. Some. Okay. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're still there because the next question <laughs> is for you. <laughs> okay. We have uh, Victoria in Arizona wants to know how do you feed an easy keeper? Uh, Victoria would like to have hay in front of her horse 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
Well, the good news is that um, I think that's a good idea too, having K in front of them. Um, the bad news is that you have to find something that's equivalent to rice cakes. So um, we've been talking a little bit about stage of maturity. Um, and so one of the things that you would perhaps want to look for or want to think about is finding hay that is clean, um, that doesn't have mold, that doesn't have any contaminants, but is mature. So it's going to be higher in fiber. It's going to be stemmier. It's going to be less delicious. Um, and probably you're going to look for something that's a grass hay. So whether that's a warm season grass hay like Bermuda grass um, or perhaps teff, or whether you're going to look for something that's a cool season grass hay like say orchard grass, um, you want to find one that's pretty mature. So you would actually look for bigger stems and seed heads. And so your horse isn't going to like this very well, but what they're going to do is they're going to spend a lot of time sorting through it. Um, and they're going to eat the delectable parts and they're going to leave behind stuff that they don't want. And so probably just need to sort of bite the bullet and realize that there's probably going to be some waste associated with that. And then you can also try using um, some of the hay nets that have the smaller holes um, so that it takes them longer to actually sort through the material. So that, was what, that would be my advice for an easy keeper. So, Dr. Lawrence, since you brought up hay nets, I'm going to go ahead and do a follow-up on that. I, have you found a perfect hay net or slow feeder solution for horses? Um, I think there's there are some folks that feel like they work really well. Um, there's other horses that become very frustrated by them. So I think you always have to balance that part about sort of controlling the feeding rate and then if you are um, creating a lot of frustration in the horse then that's probably not the way you want to go um, and maybe there's other things to do I guess when I think about feeding easy keepers I think well is there a way that we can make them exercise more and increase their calories by either putting a busy friend out with them or making them walk from food at one place to another um, but I don't know that there's any miracle or any perfect hay net or hay feeder. I think it really depends upon the individual feeding situation that you have. And Dr. Lawrence, I know I, we just ran an article that referenced a study that when you put a, a grazing muzzle on a horse, if you take it off, they end up consuming more grass um, than they would have had they just not had the muzzle on. Um, so that that muzzle needs to be on whenever they're on pasture and then off when they're not. Is it the, could the same logic be applied to the hay net that if they have some in a hay net and then you give them hay not in a net, they're going to be consuming faster or more? I don't know that anybody studied that, but certainly, and Steve could talk to this because he did some grazing studies. Um, I think folks have concluded that when you, for instance, restrict the amount of time that the horse is in the pasture, um, what they do is they just make up by eating more. And so, you know, they they adjust their feeding strategy. Um, and of course, if they're hungry, I think then that is another factor that goes into that. So some folks would always say, well, if you can fill them up with hay before you put them in the pasture, but sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Dr. Duran, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I think that the important thing is if, if you decide to use a slow hay feeding system,
system or you decide to use a grazing muzzle, I think you kind of got to be all in. In reference to the grazing muzzle, uh, if, if you're going to use them, use it every time the horse is on pasture. Do not give them a, a chance to uh, self-limit intake because the reason they have a grazing muzzle on is because they don't self-limit themselves. So I think you need to be all in. And then with respect to the hay nets, uh, I think Dr. Lawrence's comment of you got to be very selective that you don't uh, induce so much frustration that they stand around and try to pick and, and finally they just get so mad they destroy the feeder or they don't get adequate intake. So we talked earlier about weighing the hay. If you put hay in a, in a slow hay net and you know the horse is supposed to eat 20 pounds of hay a day and he's only eating 10 because he can't get the rest out or he becomes frustrated, well, then you're going to precipitate a colic or some sort of digestive upset. So you've got to use some, some logic and common sense of, yeah, we want to slow him down and we want to make the meal last, but at the same time, you don't want to cause a frustration or an overeating if you take, take away the barrier. Well, that's, I actually, for those who are joining us live and can see our graphic that we have up, the chestnut horse that I'm riding in, in my photo, he's retired now and he um, has gastric ulcer issues and he also loves to eat and he's an easy keeper. And sometimes when he's eating out of the hay net, I, he's so aggressive about it that I just wonder if it's just giving him more ulcers than it's helping because of his stress level over his hay. Um, so anyway, I'm I'm not sure if that's uh, a real concern or not, but but that's that's the way I feel sometimes. Uh, do do either of you have any insight into that? I I know that that if you look at at racehorses, for instance, and a lot of the um, the ulcer generation that they have, you know, we think that their ulcers are are caused by those horses not having adequate. Uh, gut fill or adequate material in the digestive system when they begin the exercise process and we get some um, some splashing of acid in in horses at least to my knowledge they haven't connected like in humans a, a definite stress uh, to the development of ulcers but i would have to think if you were irritating the horse to the point like that 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 would cause enough stress to to develop an ulcer what do you think dr lawrence yeah i think that that's true yeah, he'd be happy to uh, have the hay nets go away. <laughs> so he keeps destroying them, so I'm ready to give up anyway. Um, but uh, we have another question from Vahe in our audience. Um, Dr. Duran, I'm gonna give this one to you. The question is, what should I plant in a new field in Northern Michigan to produce the best forage for my horses? How do you, how do you pick the right pasture grass? Um, so first of all, what you do is you figure out what geographic area that you're in. Um, and so Michigan, obviously north, um, certainly compared to someplace like Texas. Texas is hot, uh, you'd want a warm season grass. Michigan is cool, you'd want a cool season grass or something that, that uh, grows and, and flourishes well in the type of climate. So it's going to be a cool season grass. And then what I would typically do is in whatever state that you're you're living in, if you contact the, the land grant university in, in your particular state, uh, they will have agronomists or they'll have specialists that can help you uh, select grasses that they've researched and know are hardy in your geographic area. 
and then you can select based on what list they give you, then you can select which one will will put up with the the hoof traffic and the grazing pressure that that horses generate. Can I jump in, uh, Michelle? Yes, yes, please, yes. Dr. Lawrence. Yeah, so um, at the University of Kentucky, we have actually um, in our plant and soil science department have done for a number of years grazing trials with different varieties of grasses to see which ones persist under horse grazing. Um, and I imagine that other universities do the same sort of thing. So you might be able to find that sort of information about which actually do the best because some plants have been tested under grazing conditions for cattle and that's a little bit different than grazing conditions with horses. And the other thing that I would say is that um, a lot of pasture management strategies are aimed at providing a maximum amount of forage in order to grow cattle or sheep um, at a maximum rate. And that may be different than what the goals are for horse owners. So I think it's important to have that conversation with the whoever the advisor is as far as the agronomy thing goes that yield or total forage mass may not be the most important thing. Now it could be depending upon your situation, but sometimes with uh, older horses that are prone to obesity, probably less is more. Um, we have a question from Kim on our live audience, Dr. Durr, and I'll give this one to you. She asks, when adding smoke, uh, soaked alfalfa cubes and beet pulp to the diet for, uh, for acid buffering, how do I measure or de determine the right amount to feed? Um, as, as far as the potential ulcer buffering capacity, uh, the alfalfa cube will have a higher buffering capacity than the beet pulp. So in her particular feeding system, she was feeding both of those um, wet or hydrated soaked. And so the buffering capacity of those is going to be based on the calcium content of the alfalfa cube. So typically what I do for performance horses is I try to time those, uh, try to time those prior to exercise between 30 and 60 minutes prior to exercise. And on the alfalfa side, I like those horses to eat one to two pounds of alfalfa prior to exercise uh, to help buffer some of that, that stomach acid. Uh, as far as beet pulp, um, beet pulp, is, as everyone knows that has fed some of it, uh, a little bit of beet pulp goes a long ways once you add water to it. You get a, a, a quite an expansion with the swelling of the product. Uh, so typically beet pulp, if you're feeding on a on a dry basis, if you're feeding somewhere between uh, a half a pound to three quarters of a pound, that's a lot of beet pulp as far as the, the volume of meal the horse is going to get. And Dr. Duren, we had a follow-up question to alfalfa from our live audience. Frida wants to know when you're talking about alfalfa weight, are you talking about dry weight or soaked weight? Dry weight. Okay. Um, our next question is for Dr. Uh, Duran. Uh, it's from Chris in Maryland. And Chris wants to know what type of hay should he feed his trail horse? Should my grass mix contain Timothy and should it contain alfalfa? And so, and there's no description of what kind of trail horse. You know, there's a lot of different versions of trail riding. Some of us like to amble down the trail and chat, and some of us like to do endurance rides. So, Dr. Duran, I think you have a uh, a, a wide answer there. Yeah, and I, and I think you you partially answered it. So the the type of hay that I would select 
um, would be based on the the trail riding intensity that you intend to do. So if you are trail riding as a social activity and uh, it's all done at a walk on a relatively flat surface, those horses don't have a very high nutrient requirement, don't have a very high energy requirement. So typically uh, the grass haze would be better since they're lower calorie per pound than the, the alfalfa type haze. So I would tend to select one of those. Again, if you're at low intensity, uh, just walking, a more mature grass hay would be appropriate. Now on the flip side of that, if your trail riding consists of, of going faster than a walk and there's lots of hills involved and the, the distance you're covering is greater, those horses will have a higher nutrient requirement because of that, a higher uh, calorie requirement, and I would select a hay with a higher calorie content. So that's when I would add some alfalfa in. That's when I would use some less mature grass haze that have a higher calorie content per pound. Dr. Lawrence, our next question is for you. It's from Jane in North Carolina who wants to know if horses on a forage-only diet need supplementation with vitamins and minerals. If so, which ones do they need? That's a great question. So in general, forages um, tend to be low in sodium and chloride. So first of all, a need would be to make sure that they have salt available to them. So that would be number one. Um, fresh forages are actually uh, pretty good in terms of vitamin content. So if you're feeding pasture, um, then probably things like vitamin E and vitamin A um, are being met pretty well. But once you go into stored forages, so especially if they've been stored for a long time, um, they have lost a fair amount of their vitamin activity. So if you have horses that are eating stored forages for a long time, you probably want to think about a sort of a multivitamin supplement. As for the um, minerals, almost at least most of the forages that I've ever seen analyzed tend to be low in a variety of trace minerals. And so that could include copper and zinc. Um, it oftentimes, depending upon where you are, includes selenium. Um, and so forage-only diet, while it um, has many, many advantages, it can have some things where you need to provide a supplement. So I pretty much always recommend to folks that if they're feeding, if the horse can exist on hay only, if the hay only provides sufficient calories, um, that they provide either one or two pounds per day of a what I would characterize as either a, a ration balancer pellet, or sometimes people call it a supplement pellet, um, that's really designed to be um, fed in just one pound or two pounds per day, depending upon the size of the horse and the type of the horse. And that basically provides all of the fortification that the horse needs, in addition to the calories that they're getting from their forage. Uh, Dr. Duran, our next question is for you, and it's from Jennifer in Kentucky, who wants to know, how long can you safely store alfalfa cubes and pellets before they start to go bad? Um, great question. Uh, depends on the environment that you're storing those in. So if you're able to keep in a, in a cool, dry uh, room away from insects, away from mice, uh, away from the, the negative effects of heat and humidity and weather, uh, those products can easily be stored for a year. Uh, on the other hand, if, if you have an environment where you can't control that, then 
forage. Um, hay pellets, hay cubes are perishable. They will mold uh, and they'll go bad, uh, again, depending on the environment, sometimes very quickly. And Dr. Dern, we have another storage question from our live audience. Uh, it's from Kay, and she wants to know if it's safe to feed loose pasture hay that's been mowed and left to dry, but it hasn't been baled. Uh, another good question. It depends on the moisture content of of that hay, uh, or that that forage has been laying around. If if you um, are feeding uh, leftover grass that either wasn't baled, that didn't get dry, that still has moisture on it, but it's been laying there for a period of time, it could have mold growth on it. Uh, so we, we don't want to feed that, certainly. Uh, if it's hay that you feel that's just been mowed, uh, the hay hasn't been down for, for very long, and you just take a, a handful and feed it to your horse, there's no issue with that at all, because it's part of the drying process. Uh, but anytime you're feeding forage that isn't completely dry, uh, you want to be very mindful of moisture and heat causes mold growth. Um, we have a question from our live audience, Dr. Lawrence, I'll give this one to you. Uh, Jennifer wants to know about her 17-year-old underweight warm blood with Cushing's disease. What recommendations do you have for him um, because he can't be on pasture very much? That's a complicated question. Um, I used to have one of those who was actually a, a quarter horse who sort of the same situation. Um, so I guess the first question I would ask is, is he is he underweight because you've had to restrict his feed so much or is he underweight because he has a low appetite or something else? But um, in general, I think some of the things to think about would be to make sure that he's definitely getting a nutrient adequate diet, so adequate protein and vitamins and minerals and all those sorts of things. And then realistically, I would probably look for um, sort of a medium quality alfalfa hay, because even though it's a little bit high in protein, um, it's going to be relatively low in non-structural carbohydrates, um, and so it's going to be low in sugar. Um, but it is going to provide um, a lower fiber level, so it will be a little bit more digestible. Um, and alfalfa actually contains pectin, which is a similar fiber source that's found in beet pulp. Um, so I would probably go that way. Uh, Dr. Dern, our next question is for you. It's from Marcia in California, who says that she can't get one of her horses to eat beet pulp. Is there anything she can do to make it more appealing to this horse? Her other two horses love it. Uh, yeah, there there are certainly with with horses, just as there are with humans. There's different preferences or preferences that that horses will like certain ingredients and not like other ingredients. Uh, as a side note, I think we make horses picky when we start to separate components and start to offer them individual ingredients uh, like beet pulp or rice bran, or we top dress with additional oats, or we start adding carrots or apples or things like that. Uh, they see lots of variety, and because of that variety, they, they act just like they're grazing. No, I don't like that, so I'm going to eat this, but leave that. So the question is, what can she do? Uh, what I would do is I would put a portion of the horse's fiber requirement, I'd put it in the beet pulp. In other words, I would use an alfalfa pellet or an alfalfa cube, something that generally has good palatability, and I would soak that right along with the beet pulp so it gets mixed in and dispersed, and perhaps that can help with the appetite. 
So, Dr. Duran, if a horse doesn't like something, do we have to make it eat it? Great question. It, it depends on what it is. If, if it doesn't like its vitamin mineral supplement and we know that you live in a deficient area for selenium and copper and zinc and those sorts of things, yeah, we certainly want to figure out a way to get that horse to eat it. Uh, if they don't want to eat beet pulp or they don't want to eat rice bran or they don't like it when you dribble um, a soybean oil or a canola over their oil over the top of their feet, chances are you don't need it. So there's there's other ways to, to do that. So you certainly don't need to say, uh, it's the trend in my barn to feed beet pulp. This horse has to eat beet pulp. Um, beet pulp's a, a high-fiber, high-calorie ingredient that is great in certain horses' diets, but if they won't eat it, there's certainly other things that we can give them uh, that will meet those energy or nutrient requirements. Um, Dr. Lawrence, our next question is for you, and it's also about beet pulp. It's from Catherine in British Columbia, Canada. Catherine wants to know, when feeding beet pulp, how much is safe to feed? Uh, is it in cups or in pounds before it's soaked thoroughly? And can you feed too much? Um, I'm sure that at some point in time you can feed too much. Um, we've fed a, in in studies that we've done, we fed um, probably up to four or five pounds of beet pulp a day to some horses um, based on what whatever we were trying to do from a, a research standpoint and evaluate different diets. Um, but I think you do encounter palatability problems when you get up in the high range there. So um, generally, I think um, something that's in the range of say a half a pound, a third to a half a pound per meal would be something that most horses would accept. Um, and again, I think you have to think about why are you feeding the beet pulp? Um, what's your purpose? What are you trying to get at to do that? So um, you would always want to think about it in the context of the rest of the diet and how much other fiber they're getting. Dr. Duran, we have a question from our live audience. Ashley says that she's heard that Bermuda grass can cause colic. Is there any support for the statement? Um, Bermuda grass is um, synonymous as a potential digestive upset or a colic-causing forage, um, but you need to take that with a grain of salt. If all horses that ate Bermuda grass colic, there wouldn't be any horses in Texas. There wouldn't be any horses in Florida. So it's it's not all horses that that are subject to that. But the the nature of of Bermuda grass, it can get very very stemmy. It can be a very fine stem, which can actually, uh, if horses aren't getting that properly chewed and, and swallowed, those horses will actually uh, cause impaction type colics. And that has been associated with Bermuda grass. But again, if if the Bermuda grass is is cut at a maturity where it, it doesn't get so so high in stem content, uh, and again you're watching that, there's lots of horses that eat it without problem. But yes, there there is some some uh, method to that, or there is some truth to that that um, Bermuda it has been associated with an increased rate of digestive upset in horses. Uh, Dr. Lawrence, we have a follow-up question from our live audience about beet pulp. It's from Va, who wants to know, uh, why would you feed beet pulp? Ah, that's a great question. Well, beet pulp is a high-fiber uh, product, 
but it's a very digestible fiber. So sometimes people refer to it as a friendly fiber. Um, and so when we're trying to get a lot of calories into a horse, um, the typical way to do that has been to reduce the hay component and then to feed concentrate that was typically grain-based. So oats and corn or barley and oats and corn, something like that. The problem is that when you get up to high concentrate intakes of cereal grains, you can get some overflow of the starch that's in those cereal grains into the large intestine. And that's not energetically efficient in terms of the calories that you're trying to get into the horse. And that starch flowing into the large intestine can also um, actually disrupt some of the microbes that are in the, in the hindgut. So what we look for when we're, when we're trying to feed high high, horses with high calorie requirements are alternatives to a lot of starch. And so what we can do is we can take out some of the grains that are in the diet um, and replace them with beet pulp. And so it is a highly digestible fiber. So we reduce the starch and we add some fiber back in that's digestible. And then we can also add some oil to that combination and then um, you boost up the calories. And so it's really just a different way to get to the same endpoint. Um, um, and again, it's mostly aimed at sort of trying to minimize the amount of starch that a horse is consuming. Dr. Lawrence, our next question is for you. It's from Jean in Alberta, Canada, who says she has a horse that is just recovering from gastric ulcer, but also needs to lose weight. How long can she be without forage? So Dr. Lawrence, this is tricky because I have one of these. I have a skinny horse with ulcers and I have a, a fat horse with ulcers and I can't decide which one's more frustrating. <laughs> so Dr. <laughs> yeah, Lawrence, right. how, do you help, how do you help the overweight ulcery horse? Exactly. Um, I guess the rule of thumb that we we try to use um, when we do our research projects is um, try not to have um, more than four hours um, without forage. And so sometimes that's, you know, that's kind of hard because if you're transporting them or something like that. But just in terms of a general feeding recommendation, that would sort of be, if I'm worried about a horse with ulcers, I would want to try to make sure that they have food at, at least every four hours going through their GI tract. And ideally that would include a forage component. Steve may have another influence on that. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's correct. I think you've you've got to provide them the forage that that chewing and the production of saliva is is the best buffer for stomach acid. So the healing is going to be uh, in involved in that in in the horse having some some fiber. The longer you go without fiber, the more acidic the stomach gets because the stomach does not shut off its acid production. So the longer they go, the more acidic you become and, and the more ulcer generation you have. And I'm fortunate because I, I obviously work for a horse magazine. Uh, I also happen to work from home uh, year round, not just during COVID like we have been recently. Um, but I I have these ulcery horses and I, I feed them so that they only have four hours of fasting at any given time. And even with that, I spend my whole life feeding these horses. Like that's, that's my job is to feed my horses uh, every eight hours. Do you have, either one of you have recommendations to help people out, especially I feel for people who are in boarding situations that don't have that kind of control over their horse's life. Um, 
do you guys have any any help for for all of us out here trying to keep forage in front of our horses? I think the the, the slow feeders are are a potential solution there. Um, a slow feeder that's that's feeding some alfalfa as well, something high in calcium that that has some natural buffering ability would would certainly be be useful. So um, that may be something that that they can do. And Dr. Lawrence? Yeah, I, I think that's probably a pretty reasonable approach, especially in the, the boarding situation that you described. And Michelle, you noticed that both of your all three horses have one thing in common? What's that, me? You. <laughs> are you are you stressing your horses out? You know, I they have the best life, Dr. Durant. Like, they really have no complaints. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they don't actually have ulcers. Maybe they just want you to try out all the new ulcer supplements. And, oh, no. And we, we, we scoped. There were ulcers. <laughs> all right. Then they're overachievers. Oh, man. Yeah. High, high stress individuals, uh, those two are. So, um, Dr. Duran, before we go, I have one more question. I told you I wanted to try to get to the donkey question, and so I'm going to squeeze it in here at the end. Uh, Edith in Michigan wants to know what, what is the best forage for donkeys because these little guys can be challenging. Um, yes, yeah, so the thing that you need to realize with donkeys is they need less speed than the same body weight pony or, or small horse. Uh, they're more efficient in their fiber digesting capacity and that's due to a slower rate of passage. So they can eat forages that are poorer quality and extract the calories where a horse or pony is not as efficient in doing that. So the types of, of forages you would select for a donkey, you would absolutely go for the more mature, less digestible. Um, so the stem would be uh, more of a, a thicker, woodier type stem plant uh, that you would select as the hay source for them. And the thing that will get most donkeys in trouble is killing them with kindness. You overfeed them, uh, they are adapted for environments where um, they have to travel between meals and they have to uh, actually search for their forage. So uh, small meals of very mature hay would be what I would recommend for a donkey. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Duran. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have for tonight. Um, I want to thank Dr. Lawrence and Dr. Duran for joining us and for the great conversation. I think there was some really useful information for everyone who was listening, and we've had a, a nice big crowd for this live event. So thank you to both of you. You're welcome. Great to be here. I want to thank our sponsor, Stan Lee, for bringing this event to everyone for free tonight, and also to our listeners for joining us and for submitting such great questions. I hope that you can join us next time. We're going to be talking about fear behavior in horses. Uh, until then, from all of us here at The Horse, have a great night. <laughs>